We are proud members of the Spy Podcast Network. Find out more at www.spypodcasts.com. It was not a single apron of razor wire, as they had told him, but double. And when he pulled, it came away from the staves. He stepped across, reattached the wire, and stared into the forest ahead. He felt, even in that moment of unspeakable terror, while the sweat blinded him and the throbbing of his temples drowned the rustling of the wind, a full, confiding gratitude towards Avery and Haldane, as if he knew they had deceived him for his own good. This is the Lacare Cast. Hello and welcome back to Lacare Cast. My name's Jeff, and I continue to be joined by Jeremy Dunce as we take this deep dive and look into Lacare's book, The Looking Glass War. Now, if you haven't already, go back, listen to part one. I think you'll find some really fascinating discussions. And I want to dive even more into the book here because I want to ask you about one of the other things that I think puts a finger on what Lacare was thinking. This is, an, uh, from again, from that publisher's note or letter that he had written. He describes the book as the story of the phenomenon of the committed men who are committed to nothing but one another and the dreams they collectively evoke. These people have no ideological involvement. Half the time they think they are fighting the Germans. A good deal of the time they are fighting rival departments. The motor of their engines lies not in the indicators, not in the Cold War, but in their own desolate mentalities. They are the tragic ghosts, the unfallen dead of the last war. Wow, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> so, I mean, that obviously giving the game away with that one a little bit about what he was really trying to get at with this book. I think this plays out, I mean, even in his last novel, Silverview, he is saying that we're still playing with the ghosts of, of the past, right? I mean, he thinks England is living in the past as far as wh- what its role in the world is. Wouldn't you say that? I mean, isn't that kind of his thesis over the past 50 years or so? I think so. And I think he was very sceptical, I think, about the reputation that Britain, the self-image Britain had from the Second World War. So I think a lot of this is about that. Because as you were saying before, when there's a war, you're useful. When there's a crisis, you're useful. And the assumption is that that meant that they were useful and good. And if you take away that, which is what he's doing in that book, well, what's really left? Is it about the Germans? Or is it about being a hero or getting a Humber that's driven by a chauffeur? Um, or proving proving to your wife, you know that's the Graham Green aspect. I think proving to your wife that you're important feels like a very Graham Green theme that you're that you're an important man. Well, let's talk about Lyser because he is a, one of the more interesting characters in this novel because of his motivations. He's Polish and is as you said kind of obsessed with being taken as part of the british culture and yet we see him through the lens of all of these folks in the department who are rather disdainful of that right yeah and i think i mean he's taking the role of lemus roughly so why is it in a way that this and he meets you know a similar end so why is it that lemus is such a famous vivid character and lysa isn't 
um, because there's not that much dissimilarity. And I think one of them is to do with perspective, that we, we take Lemus's perspective much more in this biochemistry from the cold. And here, he's, he's the expendable pawn, the same as Lemus was. But Lemus is self-aware enough to realise that that's what's going on. And that's what happened at the end of, of, of that novel. But yeah, I think there's a class issue and there's a kind of colonial, kind of imperialistic issue. So he's not one of us. So there's a bit where he's been trained and Lysa says, tell me something else, John. I don't want to rock the boat to see, but tell me this. Would I be any good on the inside? The inside? In the office with you people? I suppose you've got to be born to it, really, like the captain. I'm afraid so, Fred. You know, there's no way, it doesn't matter how brilliant Lysa could be, that he could ever work in the office with these people. And I think there are various references. I think his girlfriend, Betty, he says, like, a big company has come calling when he's first made the offer by Haldane. And she says, what would they want with a pole? And he says, well, they want me. And I think that's what changes his mind. The fact that she doubts that he would be accepted by, you know, a big British company, I think, is a, is a motivation for it. Well, Lacare is always dealing with class hmm. and education and, you know, like, those types of of issues and i think this is one of the more pointed versions of that i think where yeah. it's really stark i i don't know that it's it's always there bubbling underneath but this is where it really feels like he's just putting it right out there that to the ruling classes everybody else is a second class citizen no matter what they've done or or believe or how how good or bad they are right yeah, I mean, there was an article he wrote in the New York Times in uh, 1977 called In England Now. I don't know if you've read this. I don't know. Well, I can send you the link, but it's quite an amazing article because it's sort of a, it's just a kind of rant, basically, about lots of different, <laughs> about lots of different things. Lots of familiar themes. Um, his school days is, you know, class. And he's really talking about how, you know, in war films, for example, but he's talking really about in war films, you always have the upper classes who are kind of controlling things. And then you have, you know, the soldiers are always the lower classes. And that's simply what's going on here, that Avery has no experience or knowledge. They're pretending that the outfit is huge. It's a kind of cardboard cutout of uh, the special operations executive where there are lots and lots of people, lots of files, and um, it's just a house of cards. Whereas the real person who's actually going to have to go in there and in the end get killed is a naturalized pole who runs a garage. And that's the order of things. So, yeah, it's a very kind of blatant comment about how Britain worked and works, maybe. Well, and and also, I think that the flip side, too, saying that people like Lyser shouldn't put their faith in these institutions, right? Yeah. If you're trusting that the, the upper classes are going to do you right, you're wrong because they're only looking out for themselves and you're, you're going to be... Uh, thrown on the fire at the, the soonest convenient moment it's very sad i mean he's he's trying to use all these kind of british mannerisms and you know when haldane first turns up at his garage he's he doesn't recognize him at first which gives you an idea of how much time has passed but um, he says it's not captain hawkins is it so it's almost like a kind of you know using his old wartime pseudonym it's like doffing his cap but also he reveals under training that in fact he was betrayed uh, when working for soe uh, when he arrived in Holland, and he was captured by the Germans. So, I mean, God knows what the man's gone through, and he's doing it again. So he's prepared to do it not once, but twice uh, for the same masters, even though it all went 
wrong through a lack of preparation or through whatever reasons the first time around. Which reminds me a little bit of the point about detail and about planning. I think Le Carre is saying it's much more complicated than I depicted myself in The Spy Coming From The Cold. It's extremely complicated. And it, it reminded me of this quite kind of infamous case that Special Operations Executive had uh, in the Second World War, where they trained an Indian princess, famously, Noor Inayat Khan, who had fluent French, to go into France and meet up with the resistance. And one of their instructions, which inevitably would have been from a posh, upper-class British intelligence officer, was be very careful when filing your messages. And what they meant was filing her radio messages. Um, They meant in in the way that a journalist says, when am I going to file my article? But of course, there's two meanings to that word. And she, who was not a native English speaker, not her first language, took it to mean be very careful in making proper records, making a file. So she wrote down in a notebook every time, everything that she did, all her messages, she wrote down. And so when the Gestapo captured her, she very bravely, apparently, did not reveal any information to the Gestapo. But they didn't need it because they had her notebooks, which they then used to impersonate her, rather the same way that Lysa is caught. And they then sent British intelligence, fell for it, and then sent three agents, at least one of whom was killed. So this was actually, that, that mistake over the word filing was actually a life and death error because the detail was wrong. And I think this is a kind of farcical, surreal, Alice in Wonderland, black comedy version of Le Carre saying, in real life, the spy who came from Nicole isn't like real spying. This is, you know, this is what actually can happen. And we see Lyser goes through all this training and even bad training takes a while, yeah. right? I mean, like, you know, I, I think that's the interesting thing is like, you know, they run him through all this this training and, it, you know, it's a lot of work yeah. for even terrible bad training it, yeah. it is is a lot of work. I mean, imagine if there really were crisis and there really were rockets. I mean, they take, you know, a long time. It's extremely urgent and they have to get this guy in. But first, let's give him a whole course <laughs> uh, in a house in Oxford. I mean, I think that is, again, not to harp on about it, but again, again, a kind of throwback to SOE's work and also particularly the films about it. So in 1947, SOE were very, well, British intelligence, the remnants of SOE were very annoyed about a few Hollywood films that had depicted the American equivalent OSS in a very flattering, glamorous light. And in a kind of fit of outrage at this, they released one of their training films called School for Danger, or Now It Can Be Told, which featured two real SOE agents. And in that film, you really see all of the the tropes that you see in all of the SOE films through the 40s, 50s and 60s of the kind, you know, the the, um, unarmed combat instructor and, you know, the code ciphering. Because this was the real stuff. You could finally see what they had really done, you know, how they got down by by moonlight and and all of the stuff, you know, they fold in the parachutes and all, all of the stuff you see in all of those war films really originates in that first thing. And this sort of training montage scene that we have in The Looking Glass War, I think is is a throwback to that, and particularly a film called Orders to Kill. I don't know if you have seen or know of that film. So this is a, a film that came out in 1958 that was written by Paul Dane, who was one of SOE's instructors, and of course, 
wrote the screenplay for The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. And it's an unusual film in that it portrays a special operation, you know, a wartime uh, operation in which the main character, who's uh, an American sort of downed pilot, I think he is, he has to go to Paris and kill someone who they think is a traitor in the resistance. When he gets there, he finds the man extremely nice to him and starts to doubt his mission and eventually kills him. And the film ends with him being told that the guy, they got it wrong, that he wasn't a traitor. So he's killed a man for absolutely no reason. And there's a whole training sequence in that with uh, James Robertson Justice, which lasts for, you know, a good portion of the film. There's also a scene at the end of the film where to kind of try to rescue some of this, the, the protagonist, Sean, goes back to the man's family and says to them, your husband was a hero. And he worked, I know that he, he didn't die in vain. Uh, he worked for the resistance. And in this book, you have a similar, you have a kind of turning of that scene where Leclerc finally goes to Taylor's widow and he says, your, your husband did a very good job. I can't tell you the details. I'm sure that he died very gallantly. Uh, very, very similar to the end of um, Orders to Kill in, an, in the attempt. But the wife then turns on him and says, what the hell do I care about that? It's not the war anymore. So I think it's a lot of this is about Britain's, it's about class, of course, but a lot of it's about um, Britain's attitude towards their own role in the Second World War. Well, and it reoccurs throughout the book after that, where you hear about Leclerc trying to get this pension for, yeah. for Taylor's widow as well, right? And in the end, he, he can't do it, <laughs> no matter yeah. what. He, he keeps coming up against this wall, you know, even in his puffed up, newly yeah. burnished, at least in his own mind, reputation. He can't pull off this this one relatively seemingly minor thing. Yeah, and there's a lot about money in this, that they're constantly underfunded. They can't get money for a widow's pension. There's a fight about, you know, the curtains in the office, the whole thing about can he get a, can he get a car, can I pay for taxis, you can expense that. This is about Britain's role in the war, but also Britain's role, as he was writing then in the Cold War, it's a diminished country. It no longer has the funds to, to do this. You see that all over the place, like even in, in some of his future books, that the cutting back, of yeah. that was something that definitely was happening in the 60s. These budget cuts, right, were yeah. all over the place at that point. Yeah. So Lyser goes over, he finally is sent out, and... We get this kind of almost like fever dream mission in yeah. behind enemy lines, right? One of the, the highlights to me was the scene where he finally sends his first message. Mm. And I think that is, for me, one of the highlights of the writing because it's just this kind of stream of consciousness kind of Lyser is trying to pull off sending this this message that he just is and he's just like losing it he can't pull it off he's he goes on way too long he doesn't change the crystals so they are able to get a pickup on the the signal that he's sending and you just see his his state of mind because he's on his way across the border right he's killed somebody and that's really what's weighing on him, right? Yeah, I think that that whole, from the moment that he comes over the border, where you sort of have, if you like, the traditional thriller begins. I mean, that feels like it could be from maybe not a James Bond novel, but it's that's a very action-oriented thing. The way that he comes across, he kills a sentry for no apparent reason in a kind of couple of sentences poetically described. But I think that it's a virtuoso sequence, again, that this whole, this whole last part of the book, as I say, I think I, some of the dialogue later at the very very end i'm not so sure i believe but this whole bit with lysa when we stick with lysa all of the stuff with the girl all of the stuff with the radio set is incredibly tense 
and extremely vivid and it feels like you are in East Germany. It feels like this is, he's cut adrift behind enemy lines. He doesn't know what he's doing. It's all gone terribly wrong. And I think this is just, it's again, it's classic. This is classic Le Carre material. Yeah, I thinking back on reading that sequence again, where he's trying to send send that message over and he can't even like get his fingers to work right. You yeah. know, he's lost his he's lost his notebook where he's supposed to write all the stuff back down and yeah. he's just frantically trying to figure this out yeah. using this like just terribly outdated and the fact that we know that this is just doom is coming is yeah. is is really something and and the scene when we see them over in uh west germany getting this yeah. right because johnson is the guy who's trained him and he's just crushed that yeah. his student has failed so completely yeah and again he's a little bit like orders to kill i mean the lesson is things go wrong they don't always happen like in hollywood films this is the reality of what spines really like it's a panic it's uncomfortable it's you know excruciating it's embarrassing it's terrible he's in he's in a terrible hole and he's got himself we've just been through you know, what seems like months of training. And suddenly within minutes, the entire thing has collapsed. And even worse than that, at compounding all of that is the moment where we have Smiley show up and basically tell him to roll things up. We're done. You know, that's it. He's dead. There's nothing we're going to be able to do. Yeah. And in another book that might feel acceptable mm. to a certain extent. I think in this one, it's just utterly demoralizing, right? Because it's mm. just Leclerc has become so full of himself that he sees this as a win, which is just completely diluted, right? Yeah. I mean, I think if this was added, which it seems it was at the very last minute, I think this is a kind of flourish that is rather... There's a lot of kind of anti-thriller material in this. It seems like a literary novel. But then at the end of that chapter, you have a very dramatic moment. There was a draft followed by the sound of someone cautiously ascending the stairs. A figure appeared in the attic doorway. He wore an expensive overcoat of brown tweed, a little too long in the sleeve. It was Smiley. I mean, this is this is a cliffhanger. This, this whole book is kind of eschewing all kind of trappings of the genre. But now we have you know, a real entrance by by Smiley here. And yeah, it's dissatisfying in that you could imagine a different book with the same basic plot as this. But if the Leclerc character was more like Smiley, was more of a competent operator who believed in what he was doing, who was a clever man on the side of good. And if Lysa died, but in doing so managed to pass a film of the actual rocket installations suddenly the whole book is a very commercial easy book maybe maybe you have a love story so he could have done all that he has the he has all of the, the all of the kind of basic ingredients are here for something that could have been a hit in the same vein as the spy who came in from the cold you could still have the doomed ending and all of that kind of stuff but that wasn't on his mind so I think that readers were probably hoping for something like that. You know, I think I was when I first read it. You're definitely hoping there's going to be, despite all the evidence to the contrary, some kind of last-minute reprieve, something that makes it worthwhile. But there isn't. I liked the one bit with the East German officers who are searching for for Lyser, right? There's the sergeant and there's the captain, and the captain's shown to be kind of clueless, and it's the sergeant who really knows what's going on. Yeah. And... 
I love that bit of competence because the sergeant knows how to flush him out, right? And that felt really, uh, really real too, right? We know there's a spy here. We'll give the spy something to look and spy for. Yeah. (laughs) So he he calls in as many uh, military units as he can get to get some activities so that he has something to send back, right? And in a way, it's, I mean, it's interesting because in a way, Lacaria is saying there is a real threat here. Now, the East Germans, because he recognizes or thinks he recognizes Lysa's fist from Norway. And that's an immediate reminder. We're dealing with ex-Nazis, which Lacaria was extremely conscious of working himself in Germany. So he's sort of saying there are no, there's no, there's no missile sight, but the, there are competent spies on the other side who will catch you. You know, if you if you mess it up, they will get you. So, yeah, I think it's a brilliant... I mean, there's not that much of it, though. I mean, in the film, they try to make more of this by they having a very Gestapo-looking guy with black gloves to kind of set up a villain. So we don't have a kind of Carla-style antagonist here. We just have those kind of few little scenes. Yeah, who? what is the antagonist here? Is it like British incompetence? Is that kind of yeah. the... the uh... It's themselves. It's themselves, I think. It's... Yeah you know self-delusion lust for power and status and it's an internalized conflict well and the class stuff is always fascinating to me it's also fascinating in that i i was looking at the back of the book that i read in my copy and it refers you know it's got the little blurb about lacare and it says john lacare is the pseudonym of an oxford educated former Mm. member of the british foreign service it's like you know (laughs) we're not going to read it unless we know (laughs) that he's got that oxford education yeah that does mean something yeah it's very important yeah (laughs) so i mean it's it's it was still i mean and that was like a copy from the 60s so obviously Mm. it did have some like cachet back then right you know i don't know me and it still does i guess i mean look at the the upper echelons of uh, Britain now, you know, yeah. I mean, that's still very much in play. Yeah, I mean, in that essay that I was talking about from the New York Times, I mean, he is basically, he's it's about this, it's about the fact that he's from this uh, world, but um, his sort of utter loathing of it in terms of, you know, the hypocrisy of it. But it's interesting because he must have had some sort of say. So even though he's criticizing it, he was still content with them pointing out that he was Oxford educated. <laughs> Yeah, it's crazy about how some of it does come back to, I think, Lacare was, for as much as he said one thing, he was also still a little conflicted about that because mm. he, he had benefited definitely from all of those things, right? Would he have had the success he had if he didn't get that education, mm. if he didn't have that time in these services? Mm. No, he would have been a different person. Well, it's a form of identity. And I think, as we kind of spoke about a while ago, but as we now know that he was in MI5 and MI6, they hated this book. They hated Our Man in Havana. They generally hated books that were written by former intelligence officers. The Spy Who Came From the Cold was written by a serving intelligence officer. They wanted to prosecute Graham Greene for Our Man in Havana because they thought it revealed too much. In this, he's been quite clever because they couldn't have prosecuted him for this because although you know he has a, a disclaimer at the beginning where he says none of the characters or situations are real, obviously the alias club is real. The alias club is very obviously the Special Forces Club in London. But the department, as I say, SOE no longer existed. And British intelligence or the British authorities couldn't really have prosecuted Le Carre because if they had, they would have been somehow admitting that, you know, they <laughs> mounted these kind of operations. Yeah. But what I think what I think we have is um, what we can, can sort of now see is that we have a very authentic view. It might be a jaded view. 
but we have a kind of inside look at what British intelligence was like at this time, because he'd only just left. And a little bit like if you have an agent in place, if, if they defect, their intelligence kind of goes off. And so, I mean, Le Carre himself mentioned this. I mean, when he's writing about espionage in the 90s or the 2000s, he's still got to refer back to the couple of years that he was in MI5 or MI6. But this, at this stage, it was fresh. It was raw as well. But I don't think there's ever really been a case like the Looking Glass War, where you have someone this much of an insider writing, you know, a book that is this revealing about what it's like to be in British intelligence. He's changed, you know, lots and lots of stuff and the characters and, and, and everything. But tonally, atmospherically, perhaps exaggerated in some places. But this is about as close to real-life espionage as one can get in fiction. And if you read some memoirs now, some biographies and stuff, you really notice how on the nose this was. Well, and I think the same way about the, the embassy life in a small town yeah. in Germany, you know, I think that feels very much, that was like basically ripped from the headlines of, of his life, right? So, yeah, it's interesting because uh, Nick Harkaway, his his son, in the afterward to Silverview, talked about how he felt Silverview was put in the drawer because it was too harsh about the yeah. uh, British intelligence. And I, I, I really did scratch my head over that one because I'm like, have some of these other, like, it seems like he's been pretty harsh before. So Yeah, I think Silverview is not nearly as harsh as, as this book. This is an extremely harsh look at the intelligence world. I don't think that's the reason uh, I've listened to all four of your podcasts with Matthew and kind of very uh, <laughs> oh, <dear>. interesting. <laughs> I don't know what the reason was. I mean, you came up with some pretty good speculation, but I'm wondering if one reason might be the American base that he felt that that was, I don't know, maybe it exists. I don't know. Maybe maybe there was something that was a little bit too close to the, close to the knuckle there, or possibly he might have based one of the characters, you know, on someone who he knew, something like this, or that there was something a little bit too close. I think here he, he kept... Away. I mean, it's clearly inspired by the Cuba crisis, the Bay of Pigs mess up, and some of his experiences of Germany, East Germany. I mean, it feels very much like he knew East Germany um, uh, when when you read some of this. But I don't think this is based on any you know specific um, operations or anything like that. But the general feel of how the people are, the psychology of the people, and the setup, I think, is probably very authentic. I will say when we get to Leiser's run. Well, I loved it. Well, I think it really had some great writing. There's this one bit that just did stick in my craw a little bit, and it was the release the bracken. We have the word bracken at least eight times in 20 pages. <laughs> which is just, I, hadn't, I hadn't picked up on that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's when you notice it. After you notice it, you see it again and again. It was pretty funny. I, yeah. I don't know that I've ever seen anybody use the word bracken as much as uh, Lacare there. And he's used no. it in other books as well. So I think it's a little bit of a tick. I mean, it's a good, it's a good word, but yeah, maybe don't overuse it. It's a, a, some sort of weird fern that apparently... Yeah. Yeah, I think there are a few there are a few awkward moments in it. I mean, if we're going to talk about flaws, let's let's get into that. You know, kind of what what do you see as the bits that don't work? I mean, we've talked about some of the stuff that really has sung in the book. What what didn't work so well for you? So I think I've alluded already. I think some of the dialogue doesn't quite ring true. The speech that Avery gives at the end is really speechifying. I piped for him, but there's no breath in me now. He's Peter Pan's last victim, Haldane, the last one, the last love semicolon the last music gone no one has ever <laughs> spoken like this so it's kind of like over poetic it's trying too hard to be literally a little bit overwrought there are some of the speeches about religion 
and faith. Yes, the 11th commandment, you wanted that, right? Doesn't Haldane say something about that? Yeah, the, the, second, second, the second, second vow. vow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I still, so, what was yeah. the second vow? I've never got... I, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't get that either. But no, so I think... But on the other hand, Haldane, in that same scene, he says, my congratulations to Control. Thank him, will you? Thank him for the help, the technical help, Smiley, for the encouragement. Thank him for the rope, for the kind words, for lending you to bring the flowers. So nicely done. That's almost too overwrought, but on the other hand, it's quite brilliant, I think. Yeah. So, I mean, Le Carre could be a little bit overwrought sometimes. There are a few purpley passages also in some of the descriptions, but generally I think he, he errs on the right side of it. I think some of the descriptive passages are absolutely mind-bogglingly good. They are just stunning, stunning writing. But yeah, I think, yeah, for me, I don't know about you, but for me, I would say some of the dialogue and then I would say with all that we've said, it's a little bit tricky to to latch on to some of these characters. They're not quite different enough. The difference between Leclerc and Haldane and Avery and Woodford, it's a little bit difficult to tell where some of them end and the others begin. They're all fairly similar in, in some ways. British upper middle class Englishmen with bad marriages normally who are trying to prove something and have some kind of religion in in this kind of thing. I don't know, how, what, did, what did you feel with the flaws? I think a lot of what you just said there, I think the the female characters just being so mm. there to basically harangue their yeah. significant others felt just that didn't work for me. And it, it was interesting that it was pitched, at least in America, it had a excerpt in Ladies Home Journal. Wow, how did that how did that go down? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, they had some beautiful like painted images of the f- opening scene where the guy is run down, okay. which is okay. pretty cool. But yeah, I don't know that that worked, especially given mm. the fact that you know there isn't a romance, there isn't any sort of you know. I I think coming out of at least if I had read the spy who came in from the cold, there's this kind of doomed romance that feels very. Uh, you know romantic kind of in that way and this mm. you, you definitely don't get that in this Ed. no and i think it makes it a hard it makes it a hard book by by which i mean like the opposite of soft i mean it's a it's a it's a tough book to read i think there's a lot in it and it doesn't it doesn't mess around it doesn't give you it doesn't give you some of the stuff you want you know so you have to you have to kind of search for a bit but i, I think it's kind of it's a little bit erratic but i i, I think this is after the kind of really big ones, after The Spy Came Up From The Cold, Tinker Taylor, A Perfect Spy, well, the whole Carla trilogy, A Perfect Spy, uh, maybe The Russia House, I think this might be his best book. Uh, that's a contro- controversial view I'm going to throw out there. Whoa, hot take but, um, coming from you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But for me, I think that it's... And, it, and I think it's really pretty close to those in, in terms of the quality of it. Yeah, it does feel like if he had the wherewithal to go back and make another pass with some perspective it might have come out a little bit differently and had had been a tighter book for it Mm. cut out some of those you know speechifying tighten up his dialogue a little bit and maybe refine some of the characters i could have lost a little bit of the training as well Uh, there's a lot about radio crystals (laughs) um and how they work and you know i could have lost a little bit of that as well yeah i i I, I don't know it's changing frequencies and all of that yeah and that was already uh, old news back in uh, in the 60s, apparently, because they were using all yeah. of this old technology. And so now we're like really diving back into the, the ancient times. Mm-hmm. So what would you say the impact of this book is? Does it have any lasting impact? You talked a little bit before about how it's kind of been forgotten 
out of Lacare's mm. work. But what was the effect of this? Was it just that Lacare kind of went off in a different direction or, or what? Well, I think for me, like I wrote that essay uh, for the Times a couple of years ago um, because I'd reread it. But now, because I was, I knew I was coming on here, I kind of like did a little bit more digging and a little bit more thinking about it. In fact, because I hadn't, I hadn't thought about it quite as much. And I think my conclusion is it, it had a very short-term, you know, impact in that it was extremely successful off the back of the spy who came in from the cold. He got a lot more money for for it than he got from the spy who came in from the cold. And then culturally, the book itself basically vanished. It had a very short-term impact. Um, with readers. But I think what happened is it has had a much longer and stronger and really unknown impact on writers. So, for example, Adam Hall, who wrote the Quiller series famously, or well, not that famously, but he wrote the first Quiller novel, the Berlin Memorandum, because of the success of The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, but deliberately hadn't read The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. He'd read reviews of it, but he didn't want to be overly influenced by it. And he didn't read that book until after he'd finished the Berlin Memorandum. If you then start reading some of those, the next three or four Quiller novels, a lot of the prose sounds rather a lot like the Carré um, in the early scenes where you have uh, the Bureau, uh, which is a kind of shabby offshoot of MI6. And the, the way that the characters interact, the way that the prose works, feels like it owes a lot to the Carré, but particularly this book. But I think that this book had a direct influence on several quite big writers. So one of them was Gerald Seymour, who is a long-standing British thriller writer, very successful, who's most famous for his first novel, uh, Harry's Game, which I think, uh, and and Le Carre, Gerald Seymour's on record as saying Le Carre is his favourite writer. And I suspect that this is, if not his favourite Le Carre, it's one of his favourite Le Carre novels, because a lot of his books, including Harry's Game, have the sort of basic setup that we have here. Although they they have a doomed ending often, but it's a more commercially viable, you know, way of looking at it. So you do have a kind of more heroic character. You do have more competent, you know, even though you have an expendable pawn, uh, you still have a special ops. You still have a behind the lines, off the books operation to gather some intelligence and it all goes terribly wrong. You have the kind of tension and anxiety that you have when Lysa gets into East Germany but you have some sort of resolution that makes it a little bit more satisfying. And I thought of this novel, the one before last, I think, was called Beyond Recall, and it's extremely similar. The, the locations and everything are very different, but it's extremely similar in the template that it uses from The Looking Glass War, even down to having a, a kind of club, very much like the Adius Club, in which old spooks uh, meet up to discuss uh, old operations and things like this. But so I think he's used the kind of basic setup of this book that the plot set up not the satire uh, rather a few times and then i think um, the tv series the sandbaggers which was often compared to le carré the writer of that ian mcintosh i think drew on this book quite a lot both for the tone of the, the office that they have there um, the special operations department that is is run but also down to specific plots there are several episodes that echo very specifically i think this novel um, perhaps the most obvious one is an episode called at all costs which features an agent going into sophia to get some um, intelligence and it all goes terribly wrong um, and the difference is that the kind of leclerc character uh, equivalent neil burnside a is competent he's standing over the border and he goes over to help out and then i think 
probably the most directly influenced by this is a, a story by Frederick Forsyth called Pride and Extreme Prejudice, which was part of his novel or collection, um, The Deceiver, which is set in Eastern Germany with a, a doomed British intelligence mission. And again, the, the difference is that the, the intelligence officer goes over and he, he manages to get the packet off the dying agent. But so I think that it's had a kind of strange afterlife that hasn't really been noticed, but it's actually been very influential on the genre. And those just a few examples. Well, and I do think that it had an outsized impact on Lacare himself. Right. This feeling, whether reality or not, the feeling that he was burned over the critical reception, I think, really had a long-term impact on him as a writer as well. And part of why he sometimes pushed against that, he was really, in his early books, I think, he was still trying to be not a spy writer, even though he's writing in that genre, right? Mm. And so there is a push to be more, quote-unquote, literary in what he's doing, and I think at a certain point in his career, he just was fine with whatever being whatever kind of writer he was. And he wasn't there yet in this novel, I don't think, which is why you see some of those flourishes that maybe don't work quite as well. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting because he'd sort of found his voice in The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. Although I think there are a couple of over-the-top flourishes in that book. It is a leaner book and it has a sure sense of narrative and, you know, in terms of, for example, you mentioned the love story and things like this. I think he realized over time, maybe subconsciously, that there were things missing from this book. I think he was bitterly disappointed that it wasn't received as well as he wanted it to be. I think he hunkered down. He then wrote a similar, I think it's a similar book to A Small Town in Germany. I think they're, they're, they're similar tonally. Um, and he then went entirely away from spy fiction completely by trying to write a literary novel with the naive and sentimental lover. And none of these three really came off in the same way that The Spy Came From The Cold did. So I think these three novels as a, as a kind of whole were kind of, in a way, a, a, a sort of rough mission of his own that he had to get through to find Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which has a lot in common with them, but is also much more crowd-pleasing. Um, and did you know did please crowds so yeah and I think uh, and then he and then he never looked back because I think his career I mean he managed it with three books but I wonder how many more he could have done without being remembered as if you like a kind of one-hit wonder for the spy coming from the cold but post Tinker Taylor he was then you know the greatest spy novelist who's ever who's ever lived and that's kind of fair enough but it, it, it is interesting that he changed trajectory and I guess he had this disappointment and then he had the next one. And then I think Naive and Sentimental Lover was got such a critical thrashing that, that he kind of rethought. Yeah, he really did have this kind of years in the wilderness there where after The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, before Tinker Taylor, if that's, that's a pretty decent stretch there before he had a really solid, solid hit. I mean, even though Looking Glass War sold well, I don't think... It was considered a hit by by really any stretch, right? Yeah. You know, because it became so big after the Carla trilogy, you know, that kind of extended for a while. And then slowly when the Cold War wound down with his later novels, you've got people saying, well, it's maybe not quite as vintage Le Carre. But I wonder how many people have gone back. This is vintage Le Carre. Yeah. How many people have gone back to this one? 
because it's kind of got lost in the shuffle, along with A Small Town in Germany, which I also think is a fantastic novel. I, I, I kind of marginally prefer this one, but I think they're both great, great Le Carre novels. And I think because there was these kind of, I think that's exactly right, they were kind of years in the wilderness. But what's surprising reading this, I mean, there's just so much good stuff in this book. It has flaws, but there is so much, like, I think there are very few Le Carre novels that have as good, you know, as much good writing in as, as A Looking Glass Wall. Well, and I always wonder, you yourself being a writer, how hard is it, you know, well, and I mean, I just, I don't know, I, I, how hard would it be? To, you write a couple of books that are marginally good, and then one that is just a blockbuster. And how do you, you know, get better when you're under such a microscope? I got to think that would be really <laughs> stressful and hard, right? Yeah. I mean, you're you're definitely asking the wrong man with that question because I haven't had a I haven't had a blockbuster. But no, I think I think it it was probably very hard, and I think he he seems to have had a kind of dual attitude towards it. On one hand, he was just very bloody minded about it and decided that he would ignore it and do what was true to him and his voice. I mean, this is a bloody minded book to come out with after the spy came in from the cold. It really makes so few concessions. And then to follow that up with uh, a small town in Germany, and then follow that up with a naive and sentimental lover. I mean, he really was pretty stubborn with it. But then I think a little bit, the quote that you read early on uh, when we were discussing, I mean, from, you know, he, I think he was also partially headed off course. And he, he, he says in the Pigeon Tunnel and, and, and elsewhere, he was overwhelmed by fame and it was difficult to deal with and it was difficult to put himself in perspective and see what it was. And he didn't like the way that the spy who came in from the cold was perceived that he had meant it as a fantasy of espionage as just another drama and that it was seen suddenly as an, as a kind of um, really insider's expert's view of how these things worked kind of rankled with him and clearly rankled with him a lot because you know this is a book that you, it's not just a passing thing to write something like this so yeah i think and but i think as you said also that um he used some elements of this in later books as you said that the circus later on does become a little bit more like um, the department and he tried to kind of redress the balance of not having them all be you know quite as clever as he made them in in his most famous book i got to read this uh quote from a review this one was in the fort worth star telegram back in 65 mm -hmm. it says perhaps the readily identifiable literary property that best matches the ironic spirit and wrong-headed heroism of Lacare's book is Bridge on the River Kwai. By startling coincidence, there is an important role in the Looking Glass War that would be unthinkable for anyone but Alec Guinness when they get around to making the movie versions. Wow. There are also dandy parts for Trevor Howard, Alan Bates, Richard Attenborough, and Richard Harris. Wow. Burton would be all right here instead of Harris if he's free. Wow, that's amazing. Would they actually... <laughs> when was that review published? 65? Yeah, 65, July of 65. Okay, and who did they mean? I, I presume they didn't mean Smiley. They meant uh, Leclerc. Presumably. I, that, I would imagine that was who they were talking to, but that is pretty funny that uh, yeah. uh, Guinness would be uh, mentioned in a Lacare adaption. Yeah, I mean, I, I wonder if they knew how close they had come, if they, if they remembered they had done that. I also found a review by um, Eric Ambler, wrote a review for Life, which was actually pretty pretty good review. And he, he complained... Uh, about um, two sort of implausibilities. He thinks that Avery's cover story when he goes out to Finland is too sketchy and that 
even if he was untrained, he would have tried to figure out something a little bit better than that. Even a schoolboy prepares his lies more competently. <laughs> um, and then he he didn't think it was uh, the proposition that Lysa is sent on a life or death mission across a heavily guarded enemy frontier, staggering under the weight of a 50-pound World War II radio transceiver because Control refuses to release modern equipment for the operation. He didn't think that was uh, believable, or he says possibly Lacari's sense of humour had got out of hand. But then he, he concludes, but these are minor irritants. With the looking glass war, John Lacari may not exactly have done it again, but he has done something almost as reassuring. He has made it plain that the spy who came in from the cold was not a fluke, and that those of us who like good spy novels and good writing may expect a long and mutually profitable relationship with him. Which I think is is a pretty astute way of looking at, at this, because it it's clear that, you know, even if you think the book has flaws and it's not quite what you wanted from the the, the follow-up to The Spy Who Came Up From The Cold, this is a guy who can seriously write spy novels, and uh, hopefully he's going to continue. Well, and I got a, you know, Eric Ambler saying that about you. I would yeah. take that as a win. Well, I mean, it's interesting <laughs> they never quoted any of this because, of course, The Spy Who Came From The Cold had a blurb from Graham Greene saying it's the, you know, best spy story he's ever read, which, you know, it's a little bit, it's a little bit hard <laughs> to live up to. I don't know what, I don't actually know what Graham Greene made of this book because, I mean, you would have thought this would be right up his uh, alleyway. I mean, this is so such a Graham Greene book. Yeah. Oh, for sure. You'd think they would have asked him for a blurb on that, but if yeah. you don't see it, then then maybe uh, maybe you don't want to read what he had to say. I don't know. No, indeed. Um, there's another one, uh, another review that I, I read from the time that uh, I thought was interesting as well. It talks about, uh, it says, the title, The Looking Glass War, is particularly meaningful. It appropriately describes the nature of the department's activity. They're fighting f- for an image which they once held in the manner of Dorian Gray. They're watching themselves age. The tragedy is that their enemy is decay and the russians are only an excuse to restore self-respect mm. this is decidedly not a book for anglophiles as lacare ridicules virtually everything the britain holds dear mm. and it wasn't a ding on the book it was uh more of uh probably the american hubris f- mm. taking delight in seeing one of their own take them down probably yeah yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It did seem to get a better reception in the States. Yeah, and I, I wonder if, if part of that is, you know, this is the, the 60s when the United States is a, a great power, right, and mm. is kind of booming, and England is decidedly not, and whether there was a little bit of uh, pleasure that the Americans were taking in that, right? But that's an interesting point, because, in fact, I think, you know, England was booming. I mean, this was not as a power, but this was the swinging 60s. You know, London was this mm. kind of great, you know, amazing hangout and, you know, you had the Beatles and the Stones and all that kind of stuff. This book could, is, is as far removed from that world as you can possibly imagine. There is no sense that this novel is written in the same era as Paint It Black or, you know, Carnaby Street or Mary Quant or Sergeant Pepper. There's no sense that this is even in the same universe. This is a Britain that feels ancient. The characters, even the... Th- 30-something-year-old Avery feels like an old man. So perhaps there was a kind of... That was a, that was a harder sell in the UK than in the US for, for maybe the reasons you described. But it's interesting like how out of sync it is with Britain's self-image in the mid-60s. Yeah, well, there's this moment where Avery and Leclerc go to... We talked about where they go to see that Taylor's wife and they're going to this uh, like a 
housing tower, right? Yeah. And it's just described as just, you know, they're appalled that this should be anywhere in uh, in the London area, right? Yeah, well, Leclerc is appalled and Avery tries to sort of excuse it in some way. And there's a, a lot of snobbery coming coming over from Leclerc that how how could Taylor have possibly come from this from this place? But yeah, I mean, that's, I suppose, the only bit in the book where you get a sense of I mean, it's gritty, but you get a sense of modern London because some of this could have, could be taking place, could have been set in the First World War. Mm. I mean, it's they're so <laughs> they're the they're kind of Edwardian kind of figures, really. Um, the whole that whole scene that you mentioned with um, the Under Secretary. I mean, that feels like a very very old fashioned Britain, which is the kind of upper classes, I suppose, that they don't change. Yeah. So, is there anything that we didn't touch on that you really wanted to make sure that we? I don't think so. I think we have touched on almost everything. (laughs) Well, this is my chance to fall down a rabbit hole. um, So I'm going to take it. I have one one little other thing I have to say. Yes. We have the assistant like porter that's working for this uh, department, right? Pine. Yeah. And so, you know, he refers back to the war. He's obviously an older guy. In the night manager, we have mm. Jonathan Pine, whose mm. father was a military man, right? Okay, so a family wow. has a history of service, right? Yeah. In, in the Lalakare expanded universe, I am just going to definitively say that the Pine <laughs> in the Looking Glass War is Jonathan Pine's grandfather. Case case closed. That's brilliant. I I had clocked that the name was the same as Jonathan Pine, but that's a brilliant explanation. I, I'm more than delighted to go along with the the idea that that's that's absolutely should be should be the case. Well, when they get to uh, adapting this for television, I hope they, they make that connection. Maybe they can get uh, Tom Hiddleston to do a cameo as Pine in that. Yeah, I mean, good luck. Good luck adapting this for television, I think. <laughs> it's it, it's going to be a tough one, right? I yeah. mean, what would you do to do... I, it, it, let's, let's play this out a little bit. If you were going to adapt it, you know, they did do the film version. But what what would you do to adapt this for television? I mean, the film version... You know, was a flop. Avery, I think, is uh, Anthony Hopkins. I'm not sure they even name him. And then they kind of try and get around Lysa by having him basically as a kind of sexy young guy uh, who wants to sort of sleep <laughs> right. with Hollywood stars. And then they, and then the the girl at the end, they make into an extremely glamorous uh, young woman. And they have various elements where they try to uh, kind of bump up, uh, bump up the tension. I mean, I think you have to decide whether or not you're going to make this a satire or not. If you're going to keep, mm. if you're going to keep the fact that it ends in disaster, in unremitting disaster, with no resolution, I think it's difficult to do. You need to really be very clear that that's what you're doing, and I'm not sure it would work as a miniseries because I think people would be disappointed. As I say, if the end of the TV series of Tinker Tailor resulted in control, you know, in in um, Smiley discovering that there had been no mole all along. Um, I think people would be pretty pissed off. <laughs> so I think what you could do, I mean, thinking about the McHaren series and thinking about how they're now, you know, making the, the TV series of that, the difference there is that even though they are these failures of agents um, and to some degree are kind of delusional um, and they're, they're out in the cold, if you like, from the from MI6 and wanting to get back in and they're all useless, they, they aren't, they manage to succeed you know, they do manage to actually mm-hmm. stop things happening. So I think if you were to do this as, uh, if you were to make it set now, you could try to go the Mick Heron route. You could try to, you know, sort of make this really a black comedy um, and kind of make it clearer that that's what, you're, that's what you're aiming for, because otherwise I think played straight is difficult. But I mean, I think, it, yeah, it's, a, I don't know, any ideas? I think it's a difficult prospect, to be honest. 
Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think, you know, what I could see is either if they are truly going to do like the all of the smileys, right, and that you're going to include this, then that's where you get the focus shift mm. so that it's not necessarily all about the department. They play a part. You've got control kind of puppet mastering with smiley dropping in. And so you can have kind of that as a way in. So say that. So I'm not sure I understood. So that you would you would like bump up how much smiley is in there? Yeah, you know, I think you'd have it more from the point of view of control is running this operation. I see. Right? And so that's that's our point of view on what's happening there. Mm. And and so uh, our, the characters that we're rooting for would be more smiley and control. I think you'd lose a lot of the emphasis, yeah. though, of what it's going for. I mean, yeah, that would be, yeah, LeCarre would never have agreed to it. <laughs> the other thing that I, you know, but then I, amazingly, they had uh, Lyser, what was he, uh, a baby in the war running operations, I guess, in the movie? So, <laughs> yeah, well, they don't, no, he's just, they just pick him up. He's like a prisoner that he's got no war experience okay. whatsoever. The other thing, though, I could see happening is, you know, yeah, you, you play up the comedy and then maybe if you can't end on that downbeat ending, you know, what do you do? Because it's film, Lyser dies as before, but you, you pan out from this flat and just over the horizon is this like missile site, right? Mm. So it's more of like, ooh, if only he had been better trained and they'd done things right, they would have seen it. Yeah. And that might be, make it feel less futile, right? I mean, I think... You could also have a little bit more of the farcical tone of The Tale of Panama, which was a pretty mm. successful, it's a very successful novel, and I think it was a pretty successful film, and I think it was, it was well done, and I think that worked in that you have a you know fabricated intelligence, you have it all going wrong, but somehow you are on. I have now forgotten what the name of the protagonist is of The Tale of Panama. Um, Oh, um, Harry Pendle. Uh, Harry Pendle. Yes. You're on. You're yeah. even though he's lying and making all this stuff up, you're on his side basically. Mm-hmm. You know, you're you're kind of in there with him in, in a much greater way than than you are. So, well, and and it may be like with uh, you know that that reviewer that mentioned uh, Guinness. I mean that you know as the, presumably Leclerc. I mean that could definitely be a way of of making it more. Yeah, you find the right actor, right? Yeah, I mean they had pretty big actors, I think. But but I mean I'm thinking if you were to do it now, I mean I watched recently on TV an Agatha Christie adaptation of Endless Night, which is one of my favorite Agatha Christies, which is a very weird uh, late book, and they had redone it as a Miss Marple adventure, and Marple is not in the book; it's a standalone that has no detective involved whatsoever, mm. and it was kind of strange to do it. But on the other hand, they needed to do that or something like it because it would have been very, very difficult to adapt otherwise. So I think you could do something similar. You could, you could, as you say, make this a circus operation. You could have, rather than the clerk, an actual competent... You know, control could still have been as Machiavellian with the undersecretary. Mm-hmm. You could still have the doomed ending, which we have in The Spy Who Came In From The Cold as well. I mean, control's a bastard, you know, in The, in the Spy Who Came In From The Cold. I mean, this is an incredibly nasty operation. I think what's fatal for this is you don't feel these characters are clever enough. I mean, you see mm-hmm. Leclerc's clever, you know, clever in the undersecretary thing, but essentially with 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 control in the spy who came, came in from the cold, you're you're seeing something very sneaky. So you could still have the doomed ending feel for Lysa, who sacrificed himself as an expendable pawn in this uh, horrific kind of Cold War game, but that you don't get the feeling that they actually have no clue what they're doing. <laughs> so yeah. 
maybe your twist that you mentioned, you know, that uh, the whole thing is that maybe you do that. The whole thing is an extremely elaborate um, and kind of murderous plot by control to do away with this rival agency. It could it could work, you know, yeah, but uh, they haven't called me yet. So uh... <laughs> let's see. <laughs> well, we've been going on for a long time here, but I can't stop without mentioning that we're going to get this book of Lakare letters coming out. Hmm in October, November, that I'm excited to see. Um, just from some of the letters to the editor and things like that that we've seen from him before, he could be quite biting in some of his comments. And so seeing some of that unfiltered, I think, could be uh, pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, it might also be interesting from actually a point of view of how he dealt with the TV and film worlds, for example. Mm. We might get some insights into how he saw these kind of things. I, d- I doubt there'll be a synopsis for The Looking Glass War, TV series, but there might be <laughs> some back and forth with directors, and and uh, yeah, I think I think it will be very very interesting to see what they have. Yeah, no, I'm I'm looking forward to, to checking that out. All right, I think we've I, I think we've covered a lot of ground here. We've gone through the bracken. We have uh, <laughs> meta meta doom. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, Jeremy, if folks want to find you more of your writing, what's the, what's the best way to do that? Probably just my website, which is jeremy-duns.com. Or you can just Google me, but don't Google too much. <laughs> don't go too too far in there. No, no. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. I'll have links to the various things we discussed today in the show notes and on the episode page at lakarecast.com. If you enjoyed the show, you'd be doing myself a huge favor by subscribing and reviewing it on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use to listen to the show it just helps folks see that it's a show worth listening to and if you've made it this far into our discussion on the looking glass war you obviously feel like it's worth listening to so go on and uh, leave a review drop us a comment on the website or on twitter at lacarecast you can follow me as i talk about non lacare stuff on spyrite.com or at spyrite on twitter until next time thanks for listening Like what you're listening to? There's more like it. Barbican Station explores the spy world of Slough House and the Slow Horses created by author Mick Heron. Find it online at slough.house or in your favorite podcast app under Barbican Station. Spybrary's Spy Rewind uses one episode of a classic spy TV show like Mission Impossible, Alias, or Get Smart, to talk about the show as a whole. It's at spybrary.com or search for Spybrary in your podcast app. Like the Wolf is a podcast dedicated to the Nero Wolf mystery series created by Rex Stout. The podcast has reviews of all of his stories, plus interviews with a wide variety of wolf fans. Find it in your podcatcher under Like the Wolf or at likethewolf.com. That's wolf with an E. They're all novel podcasts, and you can find them all if you type novel.network in your browser. That's novel.network.